0: Welcome to Parallel Worlds, Audio Issue 12, August 2020. The best of this month's Parallel Worlds magazine, expertly recorded. Was
1: Terminator 2 a mistake?
2: The machines rose from the ashes of the nuclear fire. Their war to exterminate mankind had raged for decades. But the final battle would not be fought in the future. It would be fought here in our present, tonight. This legendary intro text begins James Cameron's 1984 seminal sci-fi horror classic, The Terminator. Now in 2020, we've had no less than five big-budget film sequels and uncounted hordes of spin-off material that includes television series, video games, books, graphic novels, comics, and even theme park rides. The titular silver cyborg and its red glowing eyes has become so iconic that it itself, has an object, is almost as well known as Arnold Schwarzenegger, whose career was significantly boosted by portraying it. Writer-director James Cameron went on to make the sequel Terminator 2 Judgment Day in 1991, which replaced the original film's focus on horror with a more family-friendly action feel. Arnie's terrifying remorseless killer made a reappearance as Uncle Bob, the reprogrammed protector of the bratty preteen John Connor, future resistance leader. Robert Patrick took the role as the newer, faster, shinier, knifier, even more unkillable Terminator machine from the future. Linda Hamilton reprised her role as Sarah Connor, mother of the future saver of humanity, and showed how the average waitress from the first film had matured into a hard-ass, uncompromising survivalist, arguably one of the best character development arcs of any film franchise. Terminator 2 pushed the envelope of cinematic CGI so far that one of the reasons for the long gap between the successful first film and the planned sequel was to allow the technologies to mature enough to create the shape-shifting T-1000 necessary for the story Cameron wanted to tell. Terminator 2 is undoubtedly a brilliant film, and shaped cinema in ways that we're still exploring even today, 29 years later. Sadly, the same can't be said for the sequels. While each film has its positive points, none of them have reached the heights of the first two. None have captured the claustrophobic terror of the Terminator, and none have matched the emotional investment or roller coaster thrill ride that Terminator 2 gave us. Has the allure of time-travelling cyborgs won off? Possibly. The curse of franchise fatigue might well have set in. However, there's another possibility. Simply that Terminator 2 makes it nearly impossible to make a good sequel. Not because it's just too good, but because it introduces unnecessary flaws into the mythology of the franchise that are extremely difficult to circumvent. And any films made afterwards need to navigate these plot-hole, shark-infested waters in order to function as a sequel. Every narrative has some plot holes and conceits. This is what we all understand when we sit down to enjoy any kind of media, be it video games, books or films. There will always be the possibility of picking apart the plot and imagining how things could be done differently. This is part of what's called suspension of disbelief. We have to willingly excuse a certain amount of contrivance in order to enjoy the experience. Good media makes us forget about that, or simply not care. Clearly, Terminator sequels fail at that job to varying degrees. But why? The entire Terminator franchise hinges on the conceit of time travel. Smartly, the first film portrays its time travel is a one-way, one-time event. The human resistance fighter Kyle Reese, portrayed brilliantly by Michael Biehn, explains the mechanisms of time travel. Dr. Silberman Called the time displacement equipment, Reese. That's right. The Terminator had already gone through. Connor sent me to intercept, and they blew the whole place. Doctor Silberman, how are you supposed to get back? Reese, I can't. Nobody goes home. Nobody else comes through. It's just him and me. And later, after being asked by criminal psychologist Doctor Silberman why he didn't bring ray guns from the future to defeat the Terminator, Carl says, "You go naked." Something about the field generated by a living organism. Nothing dead will go. I didn't build the fucking thing. Dr. Silberman. Okay, but this cyborg, if it's metal? Reese, Surrounded by living tissue. This is pretty much everything we know of the time machine. And this is all we need to know to understand the rules of the Terminator universe. Reese has to fight a murder robot from the year 2029, using only primitive weapons and resources from 1984, and with no hope of backup. He needs to protect Sarah Connor because her unborn son John will grow up to be the messianic cleaner of the human resistance and help defeat the machines. From dialogue between Sarah and Kyle, we know the evil machine overlord Skynet was already beaten by John's human resistance in 2029, and the time travel caper was Skynet's last ditch attempt to win, by rewriting history. Presumably Skynet assimilated several episodes of The Outer Limits into its decision-making algorithm. Reese relays a message that the future John Connor made him memorise. Thank you, Sarah, for the courage through the dark years. I can't help you with what you must soon face, except to say that the future is not set. You must be stronger than you imagine you can be. You must survive, or I will never exist. This is why John becomes a shining beacon of hope for the Resistance. He is literally a prophet, having some foreknowledge of the future and specific training to deal with the apocalypse he knows is coming. Even the exact date, because Kyle told Sarah all about the future, and Sarah told her son. So he grew up knowing the exact nature of the war he needed to fight. It's a single shot back in time, a one-off event that closes the loop on itself. The issues with time travel are introduced with Terminator 2 and persist through all the subsequent films simply because they all hinge on the idea that more time travel happened. They reopen the closed loop and leave it firmly open. In Terminator 2 we discover that Kyle Reese and the original T-800 cyborg, Arnie, were not the only ones to be sent through. Somehow, in Terminator 2, not only does Skynet send back another Terminator from 2030, but the Resistance also has time to capture and reprogram an older model Terminator to send that back too. This same plot device is essentially used over and over again in all subsequent films, except 2009's Terminator Salvation, a poorly received post-apocalyptic war drama. The main question for the audience becomes, if more time travel is possible, lots more apparently, Why send just one good guy to counter each bad guy that Skynet sent back? Why not send several? Or send a battalion of future soldiers? Why not try a reverse of what Skynet tried, and simply send someone back to infiltrate Cyberdyne Systems, the company that made Skynet in the first place, and destroy it? Wait, we have that film. It's 2015's Terminator Genesis, the fourth sequel. This film took an innovative and interesting run at the idea of rewriting time, given the inconsistencies introduced in Terminator 2. It features clever use of CGI to recreate parts of the original film and introduce the idea that further time travel shenanigans happen that alter those familiar events, which in turn alters the future, which in turn alters the past even more. Terminator Genesis did well at the box office, sliding into second place behind Terminator 2 Judgment Day in the franchise rankings. But estimates suggest that it didn't do well enough for the studio to invest in the planned sequels. Plus, fans and critics didn't like it. Not even a little bit. It was savaged in the critical press, and by fan-review aggregator sites like Rotten Tomatoes. Interestingly, it was originally endorsed by James Cameron himself. I feel like the franchise has been reinvigorated, like this is a renaissance. The new film, which I think of as the third film in the series, if you like the Terminator films, you're gonna love this movie. Later, when the film underperformed, he walked that back pretty quickly, and set about making his own attempt to capture the unicorn that is the real Terminator 3. By its very nature, introducing more time travel to the franchise creates uncountable loopholes in the plot. These loopholes encourage the viewer to ask more than they should about the nature of time travel, and attempts by various sequels and other media spin-offs to close or exploit these loopholes don't seem to make for very good films. In The Terminator, Carl Reese explains the nature of the machine chasing them to a confused and terrified Sarah Connor. Outside, it's living human tissue, flesh, skin, hair, blood, grown for the cyborgs. The 600 series had rubber skin, we spotted them easy. But these are new. They look human. Sweat, bad breath, everything. Very hard to spot. One of the things that make the Terminator such a taut experience is that the killing machine can pass as human. Initially, even Reese didn't know what the T-800 looked like. He had to wait until it moved against Sarah before he could identify it. This is deeply significant, since its main job is infiltration, and it's apparently very good at that. Unfortunately, in Terminator 2, we're introduced to the idea that the look of the T-800 model is, in fact, Arnold Schwarzenegger. This is reinforced by literally every subsequent film where every T-800 model we see is played by Arnold Schwarzenegger, and we're even briefly shown a production line in 2009's Terminator Salvation, where adult John Connor is attacked by a newly minted Arnold Schwarzenegger. While it's nice to see Arnie reprise his role in Terminator 2, and with a new take on it, reprogrammed by the resistance to protect John Connor as Uncle Bob, This does raise some questions. Taken in isolation, it's possible to imagine that the T-800 in the Terminator is just an edge-case design, one that just looks like that because some people do, namely Arnold Schwarzenegger. However, Terminator 2 asks us to believe that a super-intelligent AI that's been battling humanity for decades hatches a cunning plan to mass-produce Arnold Schwarzenegger robots. Hmm. Maybe the resistance in the future really is stupid enough to keep falling for it. Though it's hard to imagine why Reese would have trouble identifying the T-800 in the Terminator if they all looked like that. Plus, John Connor already knows what the T-800 looks like because of Terminator 2, so he would surely have told these resistance friends, and by extension, Carl Reese. He could even have done a little sketch maybe, had them pinned up, have you seen this robot posters everywhere? In many ways, the Terminator franchise has been bogged down by the almost pathological need to use Arnold Schwarzenegger in every film. That door was opened by Terminator 2, then blown off its hinges by all the other sequels. If Skynet was already beaten in Reese's time, and he fervently explains in the Terminator that it feels a little odd that it had enough time and resources to continue developing innovative new designs, and a new time machine, to send an increasing number of more advanced robots back in time, it's even harder to imagine that John Connor from Reese's time, entirely forgetting the events of Terminator 2, and forgetting to tell Reese to tell his mother that he'll be sending a good Arnie in a few years to help her defeat an even newer T-1000. And that, in the meantime, she shouldn't go telling everybody about the apocalypse and get herself sent to an asylum. He had time to do so, since he made Reese memorize a message from the future. Puzzling. 2003's Terminator 3 Rise of the Machines attempts to plug this gaping inconsistency by suggesting that Terminator 2 was a new timeline created when Carl Reese and the Terminator came back in the first film. Essentially, Skynet changed the future a bit, which is why Kyle didn't have those kinds of messages for Sarah. In Terminator 3, the robot apocalypse didn't happen in 1997 because of the events of Terminator 2, but in 2003, six years later than it did originally, and in a slightly different way. The overall message is that you can't prevent some sort of AI rising up and killing everyone. You can just kick it down the road. Despite actually doing a decent job of continuing the story from Terminator 2 and patching up some of the gaping rents in the universe left by that film, neither fans nor critics loved the slightly campy Terminator 3, giving it average reviews. James Cameron described Terminator 3 as great, until he retconned his comments later down the line when Terminator Genesis came out. The gritty post-apocalyptic war drama of 2009's Terminator Salvation received a resounding meh across the board. Fans of the franchise have blamed the previous lacklustre sequels on poor writing, bad concept, poor effects, production problems, studio interference, poor directing, poor acting, poor casting, and so on. Even James Cameron has scorned sequels to his first two films, suggesting that if he'd been consulted, he could have fixed them. So, in 2019, James Cameron brought us Terminator Dark Fate. Both Linda Hamilton, the original Sarah Connor, and Arnold Schwarzenegger were cast together for the first time since Terminator 2. This was James Cameron showing everyone how to make a good Terminator 3, and fans were less than blown away by the oddly paced, unoriginal action-adventure. It's estimated that the film lost production companies Paramount and Skydance something like $100 million, very far from the success they were hoping for. Fans seemed apathetic, with the general consensus being,
3: eh,
2: it's okay, as an average reaction. So, what went wrong? Why couldn't even James Cameron himself manage to successfully make a sequel to Terminator 2, given a vast budget and near unlimited casting options? Had Dark Fate been made 16 years ago, instead of the intervening three films, it might have done better. If you ignore the other films, it does a pretty good job of updating the Terminator universe to modern values, fears and hopes. But, unfortunately for James Cameron, the other films do exist. And it's clear that Dark Fate doesn't really tread any new ground at all. It just cherry-picks the best bits from the failed sequels and tries to make something new from the carcasses. As a society, our ideas of artificial intelligence, robotics and our own ultimate apocalypse have changed and developed since the original film was conceived in the early 80s. A new Terminator film needs to accept that the threat of a sentient AI deciding to obliterate humanity for some reason feels more remote to us today than more immediate, onrushing disasters. Apparently, the franchise can't self-terminate. It may well be that the best fate for the Terminator franchise is to lower it gently into the molten steel of time.
1: Four Against Darkness, a solo role-playing phenomenon. Andrea Sviligoy is voiced by Pete Watherspoon. Board games blow up in popularity all the time. Hype is a social disease which, these days, travels extremely fast on social media. However, I've never personally witnessed a spontaneous explosion such as what happened with a little solo doodling adventure system called Four Against Darkness in 2018, and certainly not one which has continued so strongly to the present day. It began in April 2016 when designer Andrea Viligoy released the initial PDF set of rules, The concept was very similar to a video game roguelike, in which a dungeon is randomly generated as you explore, facing monsters, non-player characters, strange rooms, and eventually building to a final boss for that floor, assuming your party survives that long. And I say party because the concept in 4AD, the game's shorthand with the community, is that even when playing solo, you still control a party of four adventurers. In this way, even more, it calls to mind classic video game experiences such as Eye Sharp, Eye of the Beholder, or The Bard's Tale. It's clear, though, that Andrea's influences go back to the original role-playing experiences which inspired these. Andrea said,
0: The main inspirations were the random dungeons at the end of the advanced Dungeons & Dragons 2nd edition, Dungeon Master's Guide. When my RPG group disbanded, I wanted to play something alone, but I didn't have enough players so I cooked up something that I could play alone. Taking on one of the game's random
1: dungeons is a wonderful, nostalgic crawl, especially in the area of drawing maps. The heart of any 4 Against Darkness adventure is the map, drawn one doorway at a time into a random choice of 36 different room shapes. Once the new location is drawn, the party enters and rolls again to determine what they encounter there, often with different results depending on whether it's a room, at least two squares wide, or a corridor, one square wide throughout. This gives away that it's creativity which is at the heart of this game. There are essentially only two types of location, room and corridor, but leaning away from that, 4 against Darkness invites you to roll two dice and find the room which matches the combination of those two numbers. Since the progress in the dungeon is mostly linear, I asked Andrea why he took this mapping approach, as opposed to the randomised card-based encounters used by something like Escape the Dark Castle. He said, Nostalgia and the
0: desire to add
1: something physical, like drawing. He adds that it's partly a
0: practical consideration in game design. Cards are easier to produce in the US as print-on-demand or drive through cards, but hard to do in Europe as we don't have any similar print-on-demand or distribution system. But books printed by Lulu or Amazon have global reach.
1: Then, in March 2018, a strange trend occurred. Players started posting pictures of their hand-drawn maps in Solo Board Gamers, the largest Facebook community for solo game fans, the images were fascinating, at a time when the hunger for solo games was still a way ahead of the game industry's solo catalogue. What were the maps from? A solo dungeon crawl which only required the book, a pencil, two dice and grid paper. In April 2018, Andreas CiviliGoy was in hospital awaiting surgery, when suddenly Four Against Darkness went viral.
0: He told me... The game erupted when it went in the hot list on BoardGameGeek.com. It was, I guess, triggered by fans.
1: BoardGameGeek is a massive board gaming social site with a popular feature called the hot list. It is a regularly updated chart based almost entirely on the amount of search and discussion around a particular title in the database. Every time someone searches for a game, it gets a little boost on the chart, compounded by things like forum posts. Of course, once a game gets into the hotness, its ranking is boosted further by visitors clicking on the title of the game from the chart itself. The hotness is not always a mark of quality. Often a game's visibility is boosted by a particular controversy, such as failed Kickstarter fulfilment or badly defined rules, which require a lot of forum discussion. Not the case with
0: 4 Against Darkness. As Andrea recalls, At that point, there were already enough enthusiastic reviews around, so when curious newcomers googled it, they saw it was a well-received game. It seemed
1: a perfect storm. Solo board gamers were looking for inexpensive and detailed entry-level dungeon crawls. The Facebook solo gaming community was growing fast, and 4 Against Darkness had already proved its quality. The game exploded. There were four times as many posts talking about it in April 2018 than there had been in the entire first quarter of that year. By the 20th of April, a Facebook user called Rick Ashton created the 4 Against Darkness Adventurers Guild, effectively an offshoot from solo board gamers. It came about as passion for 4 Against Darkness had dominated the group for the best part of a month, and the general mood from users who wanted to talk about other games was get a room. So they did. On the first day, the group gained 100 members. By May 2nd, the group had over 500. I asked Andrea
0: if Four Against Darkness had become his biggest seller. Strictly on hard numbers, maybe the core book of Song of Blades and Heroes sold a bit more than 4AD in 12 years, but if I count 4AD in all its incarnations and supplements, 4AD sold more. In absolute numbers, these are not huge. I am, after all, a self publisher in a business where a thousand or two thousand copies are already considered a success. Most war games, for example, sell a few hundreds of copies. It's the supplements that open everything up. The core
1: book is a fun engine, but repeated runs with a surviving party become straightforward once the characters reach third level. Four Against Darkness' initial release was followed quickly by Caves of the Cobalt Slave Masters. Dark Waters, The Three Rings and The Night of Destiny. Each of these mixed up the basic formula. The first two offered a multi-part adventure, sometimes exploring a pre-designed dungeon and other times using the random generator of the core book, but substituting its own story-based encounters. The Three Rings moves away from mapping in favour of self-contained written story encounters. Here, the party explores a narrative in a non-linear way, searching for their enemy. What these supplements reveal is something I hadn't first noticed about 4 Against Darkness. The core dungeon crawl has no setting. It is fantasy at its broadest and most generic, allowing the player to name their own locations, dungeons, characters and lore and imprint themselves upon it. The supplements, however, allow a writer to create a story within the world and share it. The Three Rings shares a setting with Song of Blades and Heroes, another of Andrea's games. The Knight of Destiny, meanwhile, is entirely rooted in Arthurian lore, making the adventure a quest for the Grail. Perhaps it is that ability to use Four Against Darkness to spark creativity which has led to so many expansions. Not only has Andrea and longtime collaborator Eric N. Bouchard released a huge number of sourcebooks, but Andrea is also very open to community members releasing their own supplements and sources, sometimes even supporting them with art and publishing. He
0: said, I do keep an editorial overview control on the books, but I'm happy to share profit and world-building with others. I'm a gamer before being an author, and I guess lots of people bring different sensibilities and fresh ideas to the game.
1: It isn't just additional source books, though. Community members have created random dungeon name generators using the same D6-based rules as the game, new monsters and items, online map drawing and generation tools, and even some
0: cosplay. Andrea said, A fan named Ron Danuser did some cool photos with live-action roleplay costumes and all that pickled people's interest. There are currently 22 expansions for 4 Against Darkness listed
1: on Board game Geek, And that doesn't even include the standalone sequels, Four Against the Titans and Four Against Ragnarok, which handle classic mythology. Four Against Mars, which re-themes the entire game as a 1950s alien invasion adventure. And Alone Against Fear, the latest re-implementation of the rules, which features a sole hero exploring an evil-infested town. It seems that Four Against Darkness' basic formula of using dice and look-up tables to create adventure just keeps creating more possibilities. I have over
0: 40 books planned right now. The gods know when they'll all be produced. Eric alone has already written over 20. We cannot put them all out at the same time or they would cannibalise each other's sales. And it's the community which keeps
1: demanding content but also creating more of it. There are, at the time of writing, over 80 additional files on 4 Against Darkness's Board Game Geek listing including fan-made creations such as The Deep Mines, A Place to Stay, in which the party puts down roots between adventures and develop a home, and even Four Against Dungeons & Dragons, in which classic role-playing modules can be converted for Four Against Darkness play, bringing the cycle of inspiration full circle. Andrea's sharing of the world and game engine is ultimately what inspires the community to create, and is a huge part of what fueled its incredible growth. With the Facebook Guild now containing over 2,700 members, his philosophy of being a gamer over being an author holds true.
0: Finally, I can play adventures that I didn't write. It's much better when you do not know anything about the story.
1: Enter the Dropverse. Dropzone Commander.
4: Sometimes a concept is just so juicy and original that you can't help but admire it. That was how it was for this writer with Drop Zone Commander. Dave Lewis, the man behind Hawk War Games, had already spent years developing the concept and world setting, and I was keen to be in on the ground floor at launch. The pre-release information and images of the models were exciting, and when it was released in 2012 I took a massive punt and bought a post-Human Republic army, a sizeable investment. I wasn't the only one impressed by the models, a couple of the guys from my local club were also interested in this new game, and invested in other factions. Drop Zone Commander is a 10mm scaled wargame played on a 4x4 tabletop, densely packed with urban cityscape terrain. It's about the same size as N-Gage model railways, which is handy to know when you want to snap up terrain building supplies from eBay. Hawk War Games initially produced resin buildings for your cityscape, which, while beautiful, were both heavy and expensive. Eventually, card building and terrain packs were released, that were more than adequate for representing the battlefield. These days, TT Combat produces reasonably priced MDF buildings, offering a much greater variety of designs than was initially available. The game is based on the rolling of a six-sided dice. What is original, though, is that it brings a combined arms approach to an urban battle zone. Your army isn't just composed of troops and tanks, you have aircraft and dropships to manage as well. In fact, most of your army arrives on the tabletop by dropship and must be flown to and dropped where you need them. That means running the gauntlet of your enemy's air defences to get your forces deployed to the greatest effect. As a result of the game's design, your troops, tanks and other ground vehicles are slow moving on the tabletop. If you need to make a redeployment fast, you have to bring in a transport, pick up the units, whisk them away and then drop them where you need them. In many other games, you can min-max or highly specialise your army in order to gain outcomes. In Drop Zone Commander, however, you have to field a mix of unit types or your army will simply fail. Need to investigate or hold buildings? You'll need to bring troops, because only they can enter the buildings. But your troops are slow and very squishy in the open, so you have to bring suitable transports for them, and transports need to be protected from anti-armour units, usually tanks or gunships. All these various parts of the army overlap and support each other, but bring too much of one and not enough of another, and you'll be at a serious disadvantage. The Dropverse, as it would later become known, focuses on the human reconquest of Earth, The jewel of human civilization was lost to the alien parasitic Scourge around 150 years prior to the game's timeline, as were a number of other human colonies, collectively called the Cradle Worlds. The Scourge appeared from nowhere without warning and swept aside humanity's defences to ravage the human worlds. Some of humanity survived. The people who would become the united colonies of mankind tended their wounds in the backwater worlds that the Scourge didn't know or care about. For 150 years, they rebuilt, devoting themselves to a powerful military-industrial complex fed by a propaganda machine that was bent on retaking Earth from the hated jellyheads. So the game is primarily a grudge match, pitting the united colonies of mankind against the Scourge. At launch, there were two other factions the Advanced Post Human Republic, people who had fled the human world only hours before the arrival of the Scourge, and the Shaltari Tribes, a sort of Hobbit meets Sonic the Hedgehog alien race with sophisticated tech. Another faction, the Resistance, were introduced later, and featured subterranean Mad Max style cobbled together survivors that John Connor would have been proud to call his own. The game background is written entirely from the perspective of the United Colonies of Mankind, and as such contains many inaccuracies, presumptions, and stereotypes of the other races. This all helps to build the setting, as well as a sense of the paranoia, xenophobia, and horror of war. United Colonies of Mankind are the most balanced of all the armies, featuring the full range of flyers and armour. Their troops are well trained and ready, their tanks and equipment are well designed and modular for easy repair, but their technology is rudimentary in comparison to the other factions. Primarily fielding railguns and missiles, they are the baseline against which other factions are measured. The Scourge are primarily a light, fast skimmer force, with brutal but short-range weaponry. The look of their ships and vehicles is organic and encompasses several other races they have consumed over time, being something like interstellar locusts. The post-human republic surprised me a lot. The backstory suggests that their population is small and the lives of its citizen-soldiers are especially valuable to them. They are advanced and have cool toys, but they are heavily armoured and very slow, which the promotional material hadn't led me to expect. Over time and with further releases, this lack of mobility has been addressed, but initially I found them very hard to play against much of the faster united colonies of mankind, my principal opponent. The Shatari are the ultra high tech faction, featuring technological magic in the form of deploying troops through teleportation gates. Their weapons are fearsome and hard hitting, and their use of force fields make their otherwise light striders impervious to most damage. Finally, the Resistance are old guard hard-bitten warriors who spent their entire lives under scourge occupation. Some of their units even use stolen scourge technology. They are lacking in air support but are very efficient at ambushing from underground, breaking through the city streets with siege moles to disgorge hovercraft and salvage ancient vehicles. The Drop Zone Commander game line was expanded in two volumes, Reconquest Phase 1 and Reconquest Phase 2. Both of these books drove the storyline forward and featured the best setting and storytelling I've read in any war game ever. The story of the reconquest is told through a series of intelligence briefings intended only for the eyes of the chiefs of staff. Each active theatre of operations is addressed and gameplay options explained in designers' notes. These books also expanded each of the basic four factions, with new vehicles and hardware to bring to the battlefield. Legendary commanders were introduced and featured in the background story. They also introduced the Resistance as the 5th faction, and allowed them to be played as either partisans supporting the United Colonies of Mankind Reconquest, or at least their liberation, or those who oppose the United Colonies of Mankind for whatever reason. In 2016, Hawk War Games had announced that they would be releasing the much-anticipated Drop Fleet Commander through a Kickstarter campaign. Dave Lewis had collaborated with the veteran game designer Andy Chambers on the development of the game, and then took the Reconquest war into orbit. Unlike many space combat games, battles didn't happen in the deep void, there being nothing to fight over out there. Instead, the action took place in orbit, over a planet's surface. Much like its sister game, Dropfleet Commander took a combined arms approach. The objective is to deploy ground forces from orbit to take strategic objectives on the surface. The Kickstarter was so wildly successful that the logistical efforts of completing it brought Hawk War Games to its knees. In the end, miniatures company TT Combat stepped in and rescued the property, and went on to deliver on the kickstarter in full. Since then, TT Combat have supported both games, releasing rule tweaks, balancing patches, and eventually in 2019, releasing the mammoth book The Battle for Earth. Not only did this volume publish the complete rules and stats of all forces of Drop Zone Commander, making it in effect Drop Zone Commander's second edition, it also supplemented Drop Fleet Commander with new ships and new rules, and introduced the resistance as a space force for the game. If you like your games a bit bigger, more battle than skirmish, I'd recommend taking a look at Drop Zone Commander. The rules are well balanced for tournament play, and the background of the dropverse is well crafted and engaging. Each of the factions is distinct in their look and feel, but none are outright better than the others. You have to come to the table with a solid plan and a capable list, and play to your strengths and your opponent's weaknesses. Remember your training, soldier, and you'll come back alive.
0: Game Masterclass Your Voice in the Party If you were to go online and look for stories about poor games mastering or GMing, many of those would be about the dreaded games master player character or GMPC. GMPCs are almost universally hated to the point where it might be dangerous to introduce one at all. However, they have their advantages and there are ways to use them well, so that they're a benefit to your campaign rather than a detriment. What do we mean? by GMPC and what makes them different to other non-player characters. The GMPC is the character that the GM inserts into the game, not as a non-player character, but as a fully-fledged character. It might be the character that they'd be playing if they didn't need to GM, or a fan-favourite non-player character who has evolved. It may even be their player character from a different campaign. Many of the original Greyhawk and Forgotten Realms non-player characters such as Elminster and Mordenkainen originated this way. The GMPC will typically travel with the party if the campaign is a travelogue, party moving from place to place, or, in a more static setting, they may be closer to the party than is normal, perhaps part of the same superhero team. They'll be a part of the action rather than a support role, for example, another agent rather than a queue providing equipment. Essentially, they're another member of the party rather than somebody the party sometimes runs into. The GMPC also has their own agency. They aren't a servant to one of the player characters or a familiar. These kinds of non-player characters have a natural subservience to a player character, which sidesteps many of the problems. The GMPC is an equal to the other members of the party. They have a vote in what to do, and they get a share of the treasure or whatever else is appropriate for the campaign in question. This isn't to say that non-para characters shouldn't generally have agency. Obviously, your antagonist needs to take action. It's where these two aspects meet that we find the GMPC. So, why are they so hated? The general reason is that they often suffer from being a Mary Sue, or a Gary Stew to use the less commonly heard masculine version, which means that they are far too good to be true and wander into the realms of GM wish fulfilment. They may be too powerful compared to the rest of the party, or receive more opportunities to be awesome, especially if this is the character that the GM wants to be playing. In an earlier article I discussed the concept of screen time, the idea that balance of opportunity is more important than actual power, and if the GMPC, who is literally a glorified non-player character, is getting more screen time than the actual player characters, that's a problem. Similarly, they shouldn't be sidelining the rest of the party when combat comes around. Of course, the GM has an obvious advantage. You'll probably know the system better than the other players, so you might quite naturally end up with a stronger character. You also know all the stats of the monsters or other enemies, and you know what you've prepared for the players to face. You know the solutions to the puzzles, and if the players aren't getting it, biting your tongue and not providing help can be really frustrating. In combat, It's difficult to fight a natural urge to try to do well when it's your GMPC's turn, so you might quite naturally end up with a character who performs better than the other PCs, even if they're the same level. The GMPC might also have abilities that the rest of the party lack, which can make any imbalance more obvious. The end result? A hated party member who must be dragged around and growing resentment against the GM so why do it what could possibly justify the risk well it can be worth the effort i've been GMing for over twenty years and personally speaking i've largely been far happier when i've had a player character for me the primary purpose is to get a voice in the party however That isn't because I want to influence player actions or decisions, it's because I want to have a way to join in conversations in character. Those idle role-playing moments that frequently the GM watches from afar, but can't actually participate in. When simply watching, I find I become less engaged, and the game suffers. There are other benefits. If you're using your own setting a GMPC can be a good way to get some exposition out to the other players about the world. If the party lacks a crucial ability, a GMPC can fill that gap, though you should also try to minimise the need for that ability, otherwise you're actively giving your GMPC screen time. Perhaps nobody wants to play the healer, or one player really enjoys using abilities that require teamwork, but the rest of the party aren't interested. You can step in to improve the game for everybody. Of course, even if you don't intend it, a non-player character might drift into becoming a GMPC. Perhaps one of the leaders has an ability that provides them with a non-player character, the leadership feat in D&D 3.5, or various incarnations of a trusted companion advantage in many other games. Perhaps a PC becomes romantically involved with a non-player character who then travels along with the party. As you role-play that companion non-player character, they'll develop more of a personality and you'll probably start to play and enjoy them more. Even here, care is needed. I've had experiences where a servant, provided by an advantage, was more important than the player-catcher themselves. And in one example, a character's horse proved to be more popular than they did. Some games keep the abilities of non-player characters fairly vague, or use monster-style statistic blocks for them. Others will use the same rules as for a PC, at which point the line between these non-player characters and a GMPC is very thin. Whatever the reason for your GMPC, they can add game value. So how do you make them an asset? Avoiding these problems is actually fairly straightforward in theory. But it's harder in practice, because you'll need to ignore some of your natural instincts. The first and most straightforward principle is to always ensure that GMPCs are no more powerful than any player character. They should be the same level, with the same amount of XP or whatever other metric is useful for the game in question. And that is an upper limit. You might be better keeping them generally weaker, especially if there's one area where they particularly shine. When it comes to combat effectiveness, often an integral part of a player's sense of fairness and balance, you can also look at party roles. Players rarely begrudge a healer, although a player with healing might justifiably complain about niche or spotlight stealing. Similarly, a character who focuses primarily on providing advantages and benefits to the player characters will generally be better received than a damage dealer. A fighter who's good at tanking may only be a good choice if the party lacks someone that can take the defensive role. They should absolutely be willing to take orders from others in the party and shouldn't gravitate to a position of leadership or authority themselves. Out of combat... Balance can be harder to achieve in some ways, especially if your campaign involves any kind of puzzle-solving or strategic decision-making. Obviously, you know all the answers to the puzzles, you know what the antagonists are doing in the background, and you know what rewards and threats lie along each path before the party. It is absolutely essential that you allow the party to decide on these things and try to solve the puzzles themselves. They might ask the GMPC for their view or for an idea, but it is important to know what they are actually asking for. In some cases, they will simply be treating the GMPC like another character, who should have a view or might have an idea. If this is the case, try to limit your knowledge and decision-making to what the GMPC themselves would say, in a similar way that your players should be separating in-character and out-of-character knowledge. Be careful, though, as your players might actually be asking for help. They might have no ideas left for the puzzle, or they might be deadlocked on a decision, or simply not have or remember the information needed to make an informed choice. If they need it, then give them help. But don't take it too far. Don't solve the puzzle. Try to put them on the right track. Don't tell them which kingdom to visit next. Point out a setting detail that they might not have considered. If they've forgotten something, a simple, didn't we discover that, can add a great reminder and get things flowing again. Of course, if these requests are repeated or frequent, you may need to go further and provide more detailed assistance you may be wondering how to tell which of these they're asking for. Here, a GMPC has another advantage. By keeping you involved in the discussion, it stops you drifting off while you wait for the decision or solution, so you have a better idea of how to help. But if you still aren't sure, and that's probably the default state, unless you know your players very well, ask them. Are you asking the non-player character, or are you asking me? You also need to be very careful that your GMPC isn't seen to be taking sides in the party, although any actions they do take need to make sense, both for their own motivation they still need to come across as a three-dimensional character, and with respect to how the other characters have treated them. If a player-versus-player situation arises, it should be absolutely obvious, even if only in hindsight, why the GMPC has acted the way they have. Similarly, when it comes time to hand out GMPC support, don't always provide advantages to the same character unless there's a clear reason. Shoring up a weakness, for example, or an in-character relationship. And again, your GMPC can always ask who needs healing or could make use of a particular spell. The key to this is probably the most important advice that can be given to a GM on any matter. You should be the biggest fan of the players and their characters. You should be rooting for them to succeed and to look great doing so. Even if you run an adversarial game using every advantage the GM has to make things difficult for the players, you should still be celebrating when they ultimately win. Your GMPC should have the same attitude. They don't want to succeed for their own sake, but they are there to support the party and to help them to succeed. But don't confuse helping the characters to succeed and helping the players to succeed. If the former were important, then the GMPC would do everything they could to help. However, you, and by extension your GMPC, should be more interested in ensuring the players succeed. That means sometimes holding back, and sometimes waiting for them to act first. It means making sure that they get their moments of awesome, and that you avoid taking those for yourself. You have lots of characters in the game that can be awesome, a whole world of them. Let the players do most of the awesome on the protagonist side.
1: Evangelion. What did I just watch?
5: If you have a friend into anime, or have ever googled the list of best anime of all time, you'll have at least heard of Neon Genesis Evangelion. It's often considered to be one of the seminal works of action drama animation that helped to define what anime could be, and has been cited as one of the series that helped revive the flagging Japanese anime industry. It's really weird though, like, really weird. The concept is fairly simple, until you add the esoteric concepts that underpin the plot and we'll dig into those later. Essentially, an apocalyptic event in the year 2000 nearly destroyed humanity. The series picks up 15 years later and focuses mainly around the city of Tokyo 3. For initially unexplained reasons, giant kaiju big monsters in bizarre forms occasionally attack the city. A government-backed organization known as NERV created giant robots known as EVAs to defend the city, and by extension, all of humanity. It's possible to consider Evangelion as much as a visual art project as a storytelling medium. Its enduring visuals have been seen worldwide, and since it's released in 1995, shaped the look and feel of so many things that it's impossible to list them all here it's very likely that even if you've never seen Evangelion, you'll find the look and feel familiar. The protagonist, Shinji Ikari, is a teenage boy, son of the project director, near orphan due to his father's obsession with the Eva project, and extremely reluctant Eva pilot. Shinji Ikari is young in a way that is rarely explored in anime. He's shown as deeply insecure, Reclusive, naive, insensitive, confused, and even cowardly. A mix that exemplifies many teens in real life, and the antithesis of the classic hero archetype. He initially agrees to pilot an Eva simply because he sees this as the way to gain some time with his father, and he doesn't really consider much beyond that. Each Eva unit is partially biological, and it needs a vaguely defined connection with a pilot in order to fully function. Gendo Ikari, Shinji's father, is utterly convinced that his son is the right pilot for the EVA-01, despite the boy's reluctance and all-around apparent unsuitability to the role. Even if Evangelion just ran with this initial concept, it's likely it would have been an influential piece of media. Most giant mech pilots shown in fiction are skilled, happy, and usually honored to pilot such important war machines. The very fact that Shinji clearly and vocally hates every single moment of his time as EVO-01's pilot is significant in carving out a new path for the genre. As the series progresses, Shinji is exposed to immense pressures and horrific acts of violence as he battles incomprehensible foes. We witness him developing deep-rooted psychological trauma and post-traumatic disorders, conditions that, due to the evolving plot, have to be pushed aside in order to carrot and stick him back into the pilot seat time after time. Director Hideaki Anno has described how struggles with his own depression and mental health influenced the series. In 1995, he wrote, I tried to include everything of myself in Neon Genesis Evangelion, myself, a broken man who could do nothing for four years, a man who ran away for four years, one who was simply not dead. Then one thought, you can't run away, came to me, and I restarted this production. It is a production where my only thought was to burn my feelings into film. Layering over the core concept of Shinji's battle against his inner demons, the kaiju that form the ostensible antagonists are consistently referred to as angels. The viewer is left to do a lot of heavy lifting in order to actually make sense of what's going on, and Evangelion benefits from re-watching and doing some homework. In short, for reasons, extra-dimensional entities known as angels seem particularly intent on attacking Tokyo 3 though they do occasionally strike other locations. These entities take on many different forms, from abstract, stylized floating eyes, gigantic diamonds, bands of complex lights, and pattern-shifting orbs, all the way to more familiar giant humanoid monsters. The only thing that can stand against these otherworldly beings are the Evas and their AT fields, telepathic force fields. These angels seem bizarre and abstract, certainly to Westerners who have grown accustomed to the idea of angels being pretty folks in robes sporting fluffy white wings. Interestingly, the depiction of Evangelion's angels stems directly from the Old Testament. Angels described there take on bizarre forms from spinning, fiery wheels and giant floating eyes, as well as humans, near humans, and even mishmash animal hybrids, This isn't the only biblical reference by a long way. Evangelion is deeply entrenched with reinterpretations of Abrahamic religious mythology. There are references to the Dead Sea Scrolls, though in Evangelion lore they appear to have been prophecies of some kind that guide certain shadowy individuals throughout the series and ultimately form one half of the motive force behind the events. We're also introduced to Adam, the first human, although in a rather interesting form, and to Lilith. In Jewish mythology, Lilith was Adam's wife, and in Evangelion, she has something to do with the origins of humanity. When an angel dies, or uses weapons sometimes, a huge crucifix-shaped cross of light erupts from the impact point, one of the series' most iconic and enduring images. We're also introduced to the spear or lance of Longinus, which in Christian mythology is the spear of the Roman soldier that supposedly stabbed Jesus on the cross and in some circles is considered a holy artifact. The core of Nerve HQ is called the Central Dogma, and Nerve is partially governed by a trinary of AI systems referred to as the Magi. As the series progresses, the density of the plot begins to weigh heavily. On the surface, it's a disturbing, dystopian battle against near, undefeatable enemies, both internal and external. Underneath that, though, there's a complex web of conspiracy theories, reimagined ancient mythology, harrowing depictions of very real mental health issues, and deep questions about the nature of humanity and free will. By the final two episodes, the plot is... Frankly, a confused mess. And the final episodes are the nail in the coffin for any sort of coherent wrap to the series. However, that's not at all the end of Neon Genesis Evangelion. There's an official alternative ending to the series, plus a recut version of the whole thing that further alters the storyline. There's also what's known as the Rebuild series, more on that shortly. In addition to all of the extra reimagined material, there are also a few old video games that are considered canon, numerous spin-off manga, and a whole host of other media that also add context to parts of this story. Initially, both the overall narrative and Shinji as a character are fairly straightforward, verging on lighthearted with some kooky elements. We're introduced to Masato Katsuragi, right at the start and she takes on the role of big sister slash mentor slash caretaker to young Shinji as he joins Nerf. She insists that he live with her, which gives us plenty of amusing home scenes and an inexplicable introduction of her pet slash housemate, Pen Pen, who appears to be a sentient penguin. For no apparent reason. Interspersed with this domestic odd couple strangeness are hints of a darker motivation. Making sure he is operational is part of your job, Katsuragi's friend and nerve chief scientist, Ritsuko Akagi, tells her. It's clear later that Katsuragi, though outwardly quite carefree around Shinji, is pivotal to running the entire Nerve command center and the EVA project. And her motivation stems from what amounts to getting the job done. As the episodes progress, the plot becomes increasingly dark and disjointed, as Shinji's mental state unravels and the angel attacks intensify. There's a balancing act going on, both for the show and for its characters, to keep Shinji and the other EVA pilots, all of whom are young teenagers, on mission against a backdrop of hormonal teen drama. It's questionable whether the show succeeds. In the later reimagined versions, much of this material is either cut or adjusted in favor of adding more detail to the conspiracy theory slash existential drama aspects of the plot. Eva Oo is piloted by the mysterious Rei Ayanami. Her story is intertwined quietly with both Shinji and his father's own personal tragedies. Ray herself is extremely odd, almost reclusive, and appears thoroughly disassociated with reality. She's something of a mystery, and even when her true nature is revealed, it's still unclear exactly what's going on. Until the later reimagined versions, which flesh out her story considerably more. Eva O2's pilot, Asuka Langley, is clearly envisioned as a foil for Shinji in every way. Where he's apathetic and insecure, she's extremely proud to be an EVA pilot and utterly confident in her own abilities. Asuka is, unfortunately, also the primary quote, sexy teenage girl character, end quote, that apparently must exist in shonen anime, uh, anime aimed primarily at young boys. Although, arguably, Evangelion strays into the Sinan territory those aimed at young men, due to its darker and more thought-provoking plots. Sadly, this isn't limited to only Asuka, although she is the worst served by this over-sexualization. All the primary female characters have been exploited in marketing on the box art and promotional images. On top of that, the alternate ending to the original series doubles down on the teen sexualization to the point where even diehard fans agree that it can be a bit too much. Despite all this, Asuka has an arguably more interesting character arc than Shinji in most ways. While he doesn't show much development, except increasing depression. Asuka suffers huge setbacks that shake her confidence in herself and her abilities. This shock adjustment sets up some core moments for the character to take center stage in several episodes. Towards the end of the series, she's functionally washed out of the Eva project, and there are some beautiful, disturbing, and poignant scenes dealing with her mental state as she struggles with past and present traumas. EVO 03's pilot is revealed later in the series and seems inserted purely to drive Shinji over the edge into a complete mental breakdown during one of the more harrowing scenes in an increasingly disturbing anime. As we near the end of the series, we come to what probably makes Neon Genesis Evangelion one of the most discussed and enduring anime ever made, and possibly why it's so influential even now over 20 years since its creation ending. Kaoru Nagisa enters the series in episode 24 of the original 26, humming Beethoven's Ode to Joy, one of the tracks in Shinji's sadness crutch personal stereo. He's introduced as the fifth children, the fifth selected pilot of An Eva, as a replacement for the near catatonically depressed Asuka. He's utterly confident, poised, and pivotally asks Shinji to call him Kaora immediately. In Japanese culture, calling someone by their first name is significant and reserved for close relationships only. Being invited to use someone's first name in anime often telegraphs a blossoming close relationship. The fact that Kaora invites this intimate familiarity with Shinji within literally a few seconds of them meeting is deeply significant, though sadly, something that's easily overlooked by casual western viewers for obvious reasons. Kaota also seems to know all about Shinji, the EVA project, and bonds with EVA-02 with unprecedented speed. All this happens within just a few minutes of episode 24. He meets Rei at Nerve HQ and in his carefree smiling way casually drops this bombshell around 7 minutes in. So you must be the first children, right? Rei Ayanami? You're built the same as I am. We're very similar. It seems we both come to assume the body type of the Lilin who live here on this planet. Dum dum dum! What? We then get a few fast cuts indicating that Gendo, Shinji's father and overseer of the Eva Project, seems to know who or what Kaworu is. We also see other members of Nerve concerned with the mysterious and timely appearance of this apparently perfect boy investigating his origins. By eight minutes into the episode, Kaora is chatting with Shinji again. He says pretty much exactly what Shinji needs and wants to hear. This core scene heavily contributes to the LGBTQ elements of evangelical, further developed through the numerous reimaginings. This is significant because of the positioning of this anime in the pantheon of influential media. And it's doubly significant for being a depiction of love, admiration, and emotional intimacy in mid-90s Japanese shonen, sine, media between two young men. It's an immensely complex scene in a complex episode that's laced with so much subtext that it's still being discussed to this day. If either Kaoru or Shinji are replaced with a female character, then the scene would almost certainly be read as sexually charged and wouldn't have garnered nearly as much examination. Kaura and Shinji's relationship has been examined at length by critics and while it's clear that it's important both within the context of the show and the wider context of attraction as portrayed within shounen, seinen, anime, it's not without issues. Many have suggested that some of the American language dub versions have struggled with the exact translations of certain words, muddying the carefully chosen intentions behind the original Japanese dialogue. It's difficult to come to any specific conclusions, even after years of debate. Though the fact that the later versions, also made by Hideaki Anno, significantly expand upon Kaoru and Shinji's relationship indicate that the original intention was probably always for these characters to be attracted to each other. Regardless of their relationship, it's clear that Kaoru significantly affects Shinji's life in the short time they spend together. Episode 24 covers a vast amount of ground, certainly too much for only 20 minutes, and contributes to the confusing, scattered, somewhat unsatisfying conclusions of the series. But that's not at all the end. There are two further episodes, 25 and 26, see the start of the ill-defined human instrumentality project and are arguably a densely packed, incomprehensible mess of pseudo-psychological mumbo-jumbo. Despite this, these episodes are artistically fascinating and they are definitely not without heaps of character-driven dialogue. That's actually all they are. But it's a difficult and extremely controversial end to the series. In 1997, Anno revisited these last two episodes and created a parallel conclusion to the series titled The End of Evangelion. This alternate ending is certainly more understandable and satisfactory in that it continues the narrative developed during the first 24 episodes, but it's also not without controversy over several key scenes. The saga continues. In 2007, Anna returned as writer and general manager of a retelling of the entire Neon Genesis Evangelion story. This starts with Evangelion 1.0, you are, parentheses, not alone, and continues with Evangelion 2.0, you can, parentheses, not advance in 2009. Evangelion 3.0, you can, parentheses, not redo, in 2012 and the forthcoming Evangelion 3.0 plus 1.0 thrice upon a time. The Rebuild series, as it's commonly known, is unsurprisingly controversial amongst fans. 1.0 and 2.0 essentially take the same characters, plots, and style from the original series and literally retell a similar version of the story. For many people, This version is an improvement, as it's less disjointed and does a better job of explaining what's happening. 3.0 continues the story after the cataclysmic events that end each previous series. This is an all-new plot that picks up 14 years after the end of 2.0 and shows the results of Shinji's final decision. Though we need to wait for 3.0 plus 1.0 to see how it all pans out. The biggest change is the introduction of a new regular member of the EVA pilot lineup, and the use of modern animation techniques blended with the traditional style of the original. For casual or first-time viewers, there's a good argument to be made that this should be the first version they see, simply because it's easier to digest and follows a more cohesive narrative structure than the original version. But the original of the series is actually the start of the story! So many anime fans have likely just cried out in horror, and that's true. The Rebuild series isn't a retcon, it's not necessarily the result of Anno having second thoughts, nor are any of the prior recuts of the original series. At the end of each series, or each cut, Shinji essentially causes, or is part of, the third impact, which gives him the choice of how reality progresses from that point forward. At some points, he actually sees and lives through alternate realities, some of which don't have Evas and Angels in them at all. There's even a popular spin-off where the main cast are at a school together and facing more normal dramas. Therefore, each recut and rebuild series aren't so much reboots and retcons as literal restarts and explorations of alternative parallel worlds and timelines caused by Shinji. The major difference is that at the end of 2.0, Shinji makes a different choice, and in 3.0, we essentially get to see the world after. It's difficult to recommend Evangelion, but equally, it's difficult not to. In many ways, it's actually a pretty bad piece of storytelling, certainly the original series at least. Yet it's so immensely influential and so beautifully artistic that it feels fundamentally wrong to say it's not worth seeing. Possibly the best way of going into Evangelion for the first time is to go in with no expectations and simply accept it for all that it is and isn't. Maybe that was part of Hideaki Anno's original intention. It's messy and imperfect like much of life like people, and much like most real stories. It doesn't wrap up neatly. To many who struggle with their mental health, Evangelion rings true. Its art captures the insubstantial and gives it a shape and form that we can turn around and examine from different angles. Maybe that alone makes Evangelion valuable. Neon Genesis Evangelion occupies an important place in anime and in sci-fi as a whole. It's the origin point for so much that came later, and without it, our world would be a different place.
1: Review Empires of the Void 2 Before the title makes you pass this by, stay a while. Empires of the Void 2 is not a sequel nor a continuation of a franchise or some part in an ongoing story of which you have missed the first chapter. A better name for this would be Empires of the Void 2nd Edition. This is a refined, enhanced and beautiful remaster of Ryan Lockett's original. It takes the concept of a 4X game with fleet building, discovering planets, building resources and dominating opponents, and wraps them in a gorgeous sci-fi fantasy world with more than a hint of movie-like storytelling, and it does it all between one and a half to three hours. Each player takes control of one of five world ships containing the last of their civilization, heading out to establish a new home and compete with each other for dominance. This goal is complicated by the fact that the planets of the new system already contain intelligent life. The winning faction at the end of the game is the one with the most victory points and whether you gain those through military domination or diplomatic cunning is entirely up to you. The board itself is a huge space map, populated by eight large planets and several smaller ones. The larger ones are occupied by a native faction, while the smaller planets each hold a secret discovery to make, ancient artefacts which provide bonuses to the holder. The native inhabitants of the large planets can be recruited, but only if your political influence is high enough. And this is where the game shines for me. There is an ongoing tension between invading planets and influencing them. You can control a planet by force or you can be its ally, but it's extremely hard to do both. It's a wonderful balance because to control a planet allows you to build structures, each of which releases new resources and victory points on your unique player board. But to have the most influence on a planet makes you their ally and gives you access to unique faction abilities – as well as the ability to hire troops from the native inhabitants, all of whom are more powerful than your own basic recruits. Each world can only accept one additional building, so there's a race to control each planet for building rights. But then the best way to gain control is to recruit strong units able to invade. So maybe you should prioritise diplomatic missions? It's these kind of choices which make empires such a compelling, multi-layered strategic challenge. Compared to many other space-battling games, this leads heavily into the Euro-style of game design, favouring investment of resources and acquisition of unique player powers over straight head-to-head combat. Like most Euro games, you never seem to have quite enough actions or resources to do everything, so each choice is a gut-wrenching search for the strongest path. Empires of the Void 2 also cleverly takes the sting out of player-versus-player engagements – After a fleet battle, the victor gains control of that planet and the loser retreats to the nearest friendly planet. There is generally no unit loss, meaning that, unlike a lot of 4X experiences, there is no lengthy process of rebuilding decimated fleets. Additionally, regardless of the size of a fleet, only three nominated units actually provide stats for battle. So a player amassing a horde of cheap fighters doesn't gain any rush-style advantages. This focuses the game's combat on control of locations rather than simply removing each other's pieces. Compared to many 4X games, Empires is kept comparatively short by use of a shared deck of cards. Once this deck has run out, the final round begins, so the game is always on a kind of timer. These cards serve as both secret combat modifiers, each player choosing a single card during each skirmish to boost strength, and secret missions – usually rewarding the player with diplomatic influence, but sometimes resources as well. Hidden within this deck is one special event card for each planet. When an event card is drawn, it goes into play immediately and changes the way planets function, providing new opportunities or setbacks. There are events such as prison escapes, viral pandemics, unleashed space monsters, even the complete destruction of one of the in-game planets, This lifts empires way above dry strategy and into the realms of space adventure. As well as the randomised planet selection, each planet has multiple event cards which can be added to the deck, so each play is unique. The game is stunning, and the component quality is some of the highest I've seen. Ryan Lockett's quirky characters create a universe that feels a world away from overused genre tropes. The art style may not appeal to gamers who like their space fiction dark and gritty, but the mix of wistful humans, inscrutable amphibians and steampunk androids sits very consistently with the fantasy worlds Locket has already established in fantasy treasures such as Above and Below and Near and Far. Empires of the Void 2 compares very favourably against the heavyweight title in the genre, Twilight Imperium 4. Empires has the advantage that it's a game for an evening, rather than requiring the commitment of a whole day. But even condensed, it never feels too light or careless. The correct decisions are vital, and there is a huge amount of room for self-expression in your playstyle. It scales brilliantly between two and five players, and, as I hinted, every visit to this game feels somehow unique. This is comfortably a top ten game for me.
0: Empires of the Void 2 is published by Red Raven Games and retails for £72.99. Original Fiction,
1: Acid, Chapter 4
2: Medichips don't care who they're treating. In many ways, they're the perfect medical staff. They just apply their knowledge to anything they think needs help, heedless of politics or cost, most of the time, paramedics and hospital staff are simply there to stop the medichips exceeding treatment budgets and giving out free medication. This annoying trait has proven resilient to baseline modifications and seems to persist across generations, despite early attempts at negative reinforcement training. Extract from Breeder's Notes, a compendium by Florentine Macdonald.
3: As lay awake, Marie gently snored and Jacob mumbled, dreaming. It was very dark, very comfortable. With the musty humanness of commingled bodies, but somehow, every time she closed her eyes, she saw a purple afterglow, a figure whipping impossibly fast, imposing itself as negative space. It was late now, night time. she should be sleeping, should be happy. It was over, and she was alive. I am alive. She kept repeating the word to herself, a mantra that didn't feel true. Azir sighed and rolled out of bed, carefully shifting slowly so as not to wake her spouses. She crept down the short hallway, not really aiming to end up anywhere, just following her feet. She found herself in the small kitchen. The dispenser clunked out a cool glass of something. She couldn't remember what she dialed. It didn't feel important to know. She sat at the little breakfast table in the wan glow from lonely standby lights on the appliances and stared at the bubbles forming in her glass of whatever it was. Oddly, she could almost hear the popping of the tiny carbonations expiring. They sounded like gunshots. She had a strange sensation of falling into the glass, the bubbles larger than they should have been. Bubbles of air in a choking liquid, a strange perspective that stretched thin and thick, leaving her feel odd, feverish. The light came on. Startled, Azir half stood in confusion and accidentally pushed a glass off the table. It clunked onto the floor and the liquid spread like it was fleeing arrest. Flat, how long have I been here? Murray was kneeling and dabbing at the liquid with a cloth. "'spent glass in one hand. "'She disposed of the sodden cloth and dropped the glass into the recycler, "'then turned and wrapped her arms around Azir. "'So... "'Tell me.' "'Azir dabbed at tears, wondering why she was crying. "'She didn't think she should be, didn't feel like crying, but the tears wouldn't stop. "'Slowly, she related the attack on the Castillo Tower.' how oh, she'd seen the monster hack apart three gorillas like they were training dummies, then watching on the security feed as the second team encountered the lone assassin in the dining room. Four were killed by a grenade blast, two surviving gorillas would be scarred forever, and her second-in-command, Kyle, was given early retirement with full medical benefits. They would be having both hands replaced. Lots of internal damage, as well as his hearing repaired and recalibrated. And that was just the initial assessment. Post-traumatic stress would likely take years to fully resolve, if ever. The Castillos were kind and had taken care of him over and above the normal hazard duty payout. Azir couldn't articulate how she felt. It was all broken into discrete packets of feelings that didn't seem to connect. It was just wrong. Like, the laws of the universe broke. Slowly Marie coaxed out the rest of the awful night. After the banquet hall, the monster had been passively tracked. It had been injured badly in the blast, but just kept going like a machine with falling parts, too dumb to know it was breaking down. They'd staged an ambush at the stairs, but after a few shots, it was clear the assassin wasn't much of a threat anymore. It fired a few random return shots as it staggered up the steps, dropping its gun along the way. Castillo ordered everyone back. No sense risking any more casualties from any more tricks, she'd said. A bit late. Azir cut herself off, squashing the disloyal thoughts. We all... Pulled back to the main officers. Castillo still wanted to try to recruit the assassin. <sighs> Sid didn't like talking badly of her pater, but it did seem a big, unnecessary risk, especially since the initial order to capture, not kill, had resulted in so many deaths already. Did the assassin make it all the way? Marie poured soothing tea into their favourite pair of mugs. I didn't remember her making it. It was uh, taking a long time to assemble each part. It felt like prodding around a toothache, somehow unable to resist exploring the edges of the pain, but equally unwilling to push too hard. She, uh, she made it somehow. Her leg was bad, folded under her. It's shattered, but she didn't even notice. She was covered in blood, more blood than anything I've seen. Splinters, maybe, from the dining room. I, I was close to the desk. I could see her face. She was fading in and out, but just somehow kept herself going, focusing on Castillo. It was like watching someone die over and over. I mean, sort of. Zia sipped her tea, absent-mindedly. And she fell forward and just went off like a rocket. What do you mean? She must have been on stems. I mean, there's no other way anyone could have kept going through that. She must have popped some more because she fell forward then leapt sideways. She had a small knife, killed two of my people with it. I don't know how. I'm... I'm telling you, her leg was barely attached at that point. She got shot maybe five, six times, but still kept going. She charged Castillo at the desk. The other guards... Marie waited. Zia went somewhere else for a long few seconds. She just came right for Castillo. The others didn't have a shot, couldn't risk a shot. I I shot her, it, the monitor, hit her, its shoulder. Damn near took the whole arm off. I think only her clothes held it on, but, but she landed on the desk and it tried to drag herself across it with her good arm. There was blood everywhere Azir couldn't wipe away tears and snot fast enough. Her shaking hands could barely hold the tissues she was clutching in handfuls, confused as to where they came from. She was making a a sort of whine, like an animal. She was an animal, wild, crazed, eyes rolling in her head, face so distorted it was inhuman. I'll never forget that sound. Was that the end? No. Isaiah checked the word out around another sob. Castillo took the knife from the assassin's hand. It was like she... It couldn't even hold it anymore. Castillo stabbed her really slowly, just pushed the blade into her back twice. Then... Her face, carved out an eye, and just flicked it across the desk. And then the uh, pater just just got up and went into the back office. She, it was still alive when we took her out. The assassin, I mean, me and two others carried her. She was still warm, still. Breathing. Bleeding. Zia was still now, holding herself totally rigid. Sobbing seemed to have ended, though her whole body hurt, like she'd been beaten. How? It was all Marie could think of. Zia just shook her head. We took her to the security room and the rest left to see the Kyle. So... It was my duty to stand guard in there with her. She was breathing. The noise, like ragged bubbling. It was horrible. She just wouldn't die. I don't... I didn't know what to do. She was whimpering quietly and sort of making a grunting noise sometimes. And? Marie found herself sitting as rigidly as her wife now. The room felt colder, darker, as though they shared a private bubble of life. And I sat there for maybe half an hour and held my gun. I, I wanted to... Tears burst from Azir's eyes, unnoticed. If... If... It if she had turned our way instead of attacking the gorillas at first. But I couldn't. I didn't do it. I mean, Marie felt something change. She breathed. Ziz shifted dropped damp tissues on the table, picked up the cold tea and sipped, grimaced slightly, sipped again. And, the uh, many chimps came with stretchers and took her, the body, away. She took all the bodies. Peter Castillo came to the security station herself and thanked us all, told us about Kyle and gave us all six weeks extra holiday and a really nice hazard bonus and... That's it. Shitty day, eh? Jacob said from the doorway. Azir didn't remember him coming in. She laughed once and snuffled. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) the worst. In the morning, with Azir finally asleep, curled on the sofa, Jacob called the Castillo medical office to arrange a meeting with the psychological consultant. Ah uh, yes, Mr Preston, the chief is already booked in. It's an open slot, come when you're ready. We'll, uh, we'll look after her. Pastor Castillo is taking care of the bills personally. A crowd of medichimps ran triage on the casualties in the Castillo Tower and quickly divided the living from the dead. They did what they could to stabilise the two human survivors and loaded them into ambulances. The smaller group patched up the surviving gorillas. Service animals didn't normally justify medical treatment, but the Castillo Corporation didn't like to waste an investment, and battle experienced Guards of any species could be an asset. Two ambulances left the tower. One held the wounded guard, Kyle Sims Yala. the second had a barely-alive Denica. En route, the... Medichimp stripped off her smashed body armour and the shredded bodysuit under that, plugged the majority of the bleeding and cut away the last shreds that kept her arm attached, keeping the limbs safe for potential reattachment later. They stuffed her eye socket, multiple bullet wounds and deep lacerations with heel gel, and concentrated on purging the cocktail of toxins from her blood in anticipation of a rapid entry to the surgical unit. Her leg was beyond saving but it would require major surgery to deal with. The chimps just made sure it was stable and immobilised it entirely in a heel-gel-coated spray cast. The ambulance pulled up at the emergency door of the Summerfield General Hospital. It slid into the docking port and the driver swung out, signed rapidly to the Medichimps emerging from the side doors and loped off towards the ready room. Denica was carefully wheeled towards the admittance door where her remaining eye was scanned. Huh? The young admission clerk leaned out of the small kiosk window. That didn't work. Try a fingerprint? One of the chimps nodded and pressed Denica's thumb on a pad. No, same. Okay, blood sample? The scream bleeped. Still nothing. The admission clerk scratched her head. This was a new one? The paramedic emerged from the double doors and started reading the Medichimp's notes, nodding as they signed to him with updates. She checked the woman's vitals.
2: "'What's the delay?'
3: "'No records at all. Nothing.' The young clerk seemed puzzled. "'I've never seen that before. Ever.' There was a pause from outside. The clerk poked their head out of the kiosk window again and saw the paramedic staring at the body on the stretcher. Had the patient just died?'
2: "'Shit!' Fuck, shit, she's fucking unspoken, that's why. Fuck.
3: The pair stared at each other. Medichimps scurried about, restocking the ambulance and prepping extra medical supplies for Denica's trolley just in case she crashed. They were oblivious to the moral dilemma happening in the human world. We can't. The paramedic was pale.
2: No, we can't.
3: But, the clerk looked at the body on the stretcher. Tubes snaked out of her, dark stains already discolouring the bandages sprayed over most of her body. Her leg immobilised in plastic brackets, arm entirely missing, stump covered in heel gel and more spray bandages. Medical monitors chirped and tinged away to each other.
2: How can we? There's no way to process her through the system. We can't even get her through that door. And even if we did, what then? What surgeon would work on her for free? And knowing she's, you know...
3: I guess if someone did, what if we get reported for letting her in, right? Mused the clerk. They stared at each other again. The paramedic looked away, swore rapidly again, then grabbed three chimps.
2: You three, take this stretcher and push it down the waist chute.
3: The chimps looked at each other, then at the stretcher. One of them signed rapidly. The paramedic uncoupled the monitors and sighed sadly.
2: No, she's dead. Go ahead, it's fine.
3: Chimps didn't move. They signed back and forth between themselves so fast that the paramedic couldn't follow all of it. They weren't convinced. One of them, the paramedic, wasn't sure if it was the same one as before, signed, She's alive. It held out a slate showing the last update from the telemetry before the paramedic decoupled them.
2: Look, you little fuckers, she's dead. Gone. No one. Doesn't matter what you think. I'm telling you to get rid of her. Now.
3: The chimps cowered, grunting amongst themselves, then signed rapidly again. Two of them went to the stretcher, but seemed reluctant to move it. The third kept looking at the data on the slate as though trying to figure something out. "'Look, OK, I'll get rid of it, but you deal with them,' said the clerk finally. The paramedic shooed the three chimps into the back of the ambulance and closed the door. The clerk, looking pale, wheeled the stretcher away down a dim service corridor.
2: To be continued.
0: Thank you for listening to Parallel Worlds issue 12. If you'd like to read these articles and more, why not consider becoming a patron? There's a link on our website www.parallelworlds.uk. This issue featured articles written by Angus McNichol, Chris Cunliffe, Lewis Calvert, and Christopher Jarvis. It was edited by Tom Grundy. This audio edition featured the voices of Christopher Jarvis, Jamie Sugar, Kai Zen, Corrine Cromfley, Peter Wotherspoon and Sarah Golding and was edited by Peter Wotherspoon. Music was composed and performed by Dustin Midnight Driscoll. We'd like to thank our patrons for their support. For copies of back issues of our magazine and podcasts, visit our website at www.parallelworlds.uk. Thank you.